Welcome to another episode of the Autumn History Podcast. I'm Marion Patton. And I'm Shireen Hamza. And we're here with Pierre Mattia Tomasino. Hi. Pierre Mattia is an assistant professor of Italian at Columbia University. And today we're going to be discussing, in part, his forthcoming book, The Venetian Quran, A Renaissance Companion to Islam, which has just been published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Today's conversation will deal in part with issues of reading the Quran in Europe more generally, And in particular, we're going to focus on one section of the book, which looks at the way a 16th century Ferulian miller named Minocchio read his Quran. You may know Minocchio from the famous book, The Cheese and the Worms, by Carlo Ginsberg. Pierre Mattia, would you mind outlining for our audiences the history of reading the Quran in Europe? So thank you very much for the invitation. And I'm I'm very happy to share with you the history of, of this book and also my research. This book was published in 2013 in Italian and is coming out now in English. So I'm very happy that it will be read by an English-speaking readership. So the Quran in Europe. The Quran was read, but also worn, eaten, and memorized in the medieval period and the early modern period in Europe. We have a translation of the Quran since the 12th century in Latin. From those translations then were taken other translations in the early modern period. But what is very interesting, I think, when we talk about the diffusion of the Quran, is not just talking about books, manuscript, or printed books, but in general text. So the Quran travel in Europe and across Europe also has an embodied text because travel with the memories of slaves and, of course, also of Muslim community that lived in the lands that now we call Europe, but back in the medieval period and early modern period, where, for example, Al-Andalus or the Balkans. But also the, the Quran was read and translated by European scholars for different reasons, especially for uh, religious polemics, but not exclusively. What is very interesting, for example, in the case I I study is that this translation of the Quran into Italian, but taken from Latin, was actually not only a polemical text. What was the context for this translation? So this is a very important question because this book is essentially a manual, a companion, a Renaissance companion to Islam for refugees. For refugees? For refugees, European refugees and merchants and also Jewish community that were living in Venice that they were going to the Ottoman Empire. So if it's taken actually from uh, a Latin and polemical translation is completely recontextualized. Hmm. It's made practical. It's made practical. It's a sort of travel book and also is taken from a print that was um, made in Basel. So it's reworking of um, 12th century translation, but printed in the Protestant world. And what was the title of this translation? The title of the translation was uh, L'Alcorano di Macometto, 
and actually was um, really a companion book, but because only the second half of the book contains the translation of the Quran, but the first half has medieval uh, histories of the prophets, uh, but also early modern uh, treaties on the Ottoman Empire. Was the portion of the book that contained the translation of the Quran structured as a kind of question-answer manual, or was the text presented with sort of intermediating questions or scholarly apparatus? Uh, this is a very important question because in the history of reading of the Quran of Europe, of course, there is a history of annotation and printed marginalia and so on. So the book was presented um, in a very particular way, because we have on the margins of the book the old Latin marginalia that were reprinted in Basil, and also there were printed marginalia from other books taken and, and translated into Italian and put in the margin of the book. So there is a, a huge reworking of the paratext. So the, the annotations and the printed marginalia are very important also to, for the attribution of the translation because the editor, author, translator of this translation left a sort of biographical note, a signature into the marginalia. And he was discussing um, a small episode of the 1520s when Leo Africana was in Rome but at the end of the, mar the, the marginal note, he said, this story was told to me by my uncle, Pietro Aleandro. Oh, so from there was possible to find the translator of this book that actually was an unknown scholar of uh, 16th century Venice. So my book is also about rediscovering the life and the intellectual life of an unknown scholar. And this unknown scholar whose name was Giovanni Battista Castrodardo, was um, a young and very ambitious polygrapher. He, he was a translator of histories. He was not at all an Arabist. And also he commented on the Divine Comedy. And this is very interesting because uh, he commented on the Divine Comedy just before starting translating the Quran. So while writing for example, rewriting the life of Muhammad, he used his Dante's knowledge and Dante's vocabulary to narrate the mirage. So in this book, we don't have the mirage as a possible source of Dante's comedy, but we have a Dante scholar who's rewriting the mirage using Dante. The political, diplomatic, and also religious context is very important because the printer, Andrea Rivabene, decided to print this first Quran in a European vernacular for a very specific public. I mean, the first public, of course, not just the general audience, but the first public was related to a French embassy that arrived to the Ottoman Empire in 1547. And in fact, the book is dedicated to Gabriel Luis de Ramon, who arrived to Istanbul in 1547 to stipulate a, a treatise and an alliance with the Ottoman Empire in order to defeat Charles V. We are just before the Battle of Mulberg, and Arriva Bene, who was very interested in Protestant idea and in Lutheranism, decided to dedicate this book to 
a French ambassador who actually was living in Venice in the 1540s. And in the 1545, he was also in Istanbul. But the, this French embassy also worked as a link for refugees and also Jewish community that were going from Europe to, to the Ottoman Empire. For example, the, the case of, of the Mendes. So it was possible studying the context and also studying the members of the embassy, because we have letters, to trace back all the context and to read the book within this context. Because in the book, there are hidden messages about the possibility to go to the Ottoman Empire and also the liberality of the Sultan. You mentioned that there were hidden messages in this text. Could you explain that a bit more? Yes, especially in the life of Muhammad that is published in the introduction of the book and is written by Giovanni Battista Castrodardo, so it's a new text. There is a long portrait of the Prophet Muhammad. And especially there is a long oration that a character famous in medieval uh, religious polemics, so the monk Sergius Bahira, addressed to the Prophet Muhammad. But this oration is a new text. It has a source, a 15th century source, but is a long rewriting by Giovanni Battista Castrodardo, who actually used Machiavelli's and Machiavelli vocabulary to describe the Prophet Muhammad. But while making the portrait of Muhammad, is also talking about Muhammad is a sort, a, sort, a sort of a mask for Sultan Suleiman. And he's using vocabulary and words that are common in the same period in the Ottoman Empire. For example, that Muhammad Suleiman is the great refugee and is the great shield for people that are seeking refugee in, in the Ottoman Empire. So also the adjectives and the, the way and the rhetoric in this portrait reflects contemporary Ottoman texts. And this, of course, is not an isolated case, but we have in the 1530s and 1540s in Venice other pro-Ottoman texts. So we should read this translation also within this context. So we have Italian Protestants that are in Venice and looking for the reform of the faith. So they are linked with the Protestant in, in Germany, and this is before the Battle of Mulberg, that are looking at the Ottoman Empire as a possible ally, but also people that are moving to the Ottoman Empire. So this book seems to be published, first of all, of course, not exclusively for this kind of public. So for this reason, is a book for refugees. We're going to have a short music break, and when we return, we'll be discussing some other surprising readers for this book. <laughs> Amanda, 
Welcome back. We're here with Pierre Mattia Tomasino discussing his recently published book on a specific translation of the Quran is done in 16th century Italy. So far we've covered a bit about the history of the Quran and its many translations both into Latin and vernacular European languages. This is the earliest printed translation of the Quran into a vernacular European language and our conversation has covered the maybe original context within which it was translated for specific people who were potentially going to be traveling to the Ottoman Empire. But there were many other kinds of readers who would be interested in this text. Could you tell us a little more about them? So this book was um, Quarto, was a cheap book, was not a big folio in Latin, so it was not just a book for scholars. This is very important. And also was a book printed in Italian. This means in a language that at that time was the lingua franca in the Mediterranean, at least was a lingua franca and was a language well known in the Mediterranean among diplomats, merchants, and so on. But Italian also was the language of scholarship, language of culture, the language of patriarchism. So it was a very important language was the language of the Renaissance and was known by European scholars. So the book, of course, if it was printed in this context, then had a large success, especially until the middle of 17th century when the French translation of André Durier was published in 1647. So actually for a century, this was the Quran in Europe for the popular reader and popular readership. So because it was in Italian and was a, it was a small book. So the in the second half of my book, I follow the book in Europe and among readers. And we have very important readers and line of transmission. Actually, this was the most interesting part for me and the funniest one because I saw more than 70 exemplars and I cannot forget my travel around England by train seeking for 14 exemplars in British and Scottish libraries. That, that was amazing. And what is very interesting is that, for example, Scaliger had a copy, perhaps Montesquieu uh, read it and is for sure in his library. And it's very interesting that this book also followed the lines of the transmission of Italian culture and Italian literature into Europe. For example, Thomas Hobby, who was the translator of the Cortigiano, had a, a copy of this book and annotated a copy of this book. And also William Thomas, who was actually one of the first person to diffuse Machiavelli in England. So there is a, a huge diffusion among scholars in Europe, but also translations of translations. On this book was based on the German printed translation, and on the German printed translation was based the Dutch translation. But very recently, Harm den Boer was able to find a manuscript, Spanish translation of the Quran, produced within the uh, Jewish community in Amsterdam in the middle of the 17th century. 
And actually, this was taken from the Italian one. So there were, there were, there were relations between Venice and Amsterdam and the other Jewish community in Europe. Also that we have um, a, a Hebrew translation and three manuscripts of this Hebrew translation taken from Italian. And we have to consider that, especially in the middle of 17th century, the Jewish community were worrying and were trying to make sense of Sabbatai Zevi conversion. So they were interested in reading about Islam. I find it really surprising that there were Hebrew translations done from the Italian because I would imagine that there were so many scholars who knew both Hebrew and Arabic, there probably were earlier translations of the Quran than in Hebrew. Could you talk a little bit more about that specific one? The Quran in Italian, of course, was read in Venice, for example, by the Rabbi Leon Modena. And this text was read among the Jewish community. So now there are many studies about, of course, the circulation and the collaboration between scholars in and out of, of the ghetto. No? But of course, you, we have to imagine also that the Quran was, at that time, after 1564, a prohibited text. So I think also scholars worked on what they had. And in Venice, still we have cases of this book sold at the end of the 16th century, the beginning of, of uh, 17, so was still on the market. So I think that the circulation, of course, of, let's say, non-Arabic and non-Hebrew sources and the use of them was a, a common practice. And in Amsterdam, we have also the use of Spanish polemical treaties and Christian polemical treaties against Islam by... Jewish scholar, Jewish uh, translator. So also polemic was used to know Islam. No? So what is interesting, of course, if we compare the Spanish text and the Italian text is a sort of Sephardization of the translation. For example, in the Italian text, we have uh, the translation of Surat al-Araf, a sort of creation of the space of purgatory in the Islamic afterlife. But then in the Spanish translation made in Amsterdam, these lines were changed or cut. So the purgatorial or a possible third space was put off the text. So we have a continuous recontextualization of, in this case, the same text, but in different religious and cultural contexts. How much do we know about other readers of this book who may not have been scholars or politicians or diplomats? As I said at the beginning, the Quran was read, translated, but also eaten and drunk and worn. For example, we have cases in Livorno, in 16th century Livorno, of women and from Pisa, for example, going to Livorno's prison to buy amulets or to drink verses of the Quran that were written by Hojas and, and Imams on a plate. So the Quran moved in many ways and reached also peasants and in some cases popular readers. In the famous book that Ginsburg published in the 70s, The Cheese and the Worms, we have this case, and it's a very important case for popular readership, 
of Menocchio, the Miller Menocchio from Friuli. And Menocchio was a reader. And according to his book, what, uh, Menocchio read this text, for example, Il Fioretto della Bibbia, the uh, anthology of the Bible, or Boccaccio, through his popular culture. So he transformed the text through his knowledge. So he was an active reader. And Ginsburg was able in the 70s to give this agency back to this unknown person that actually was executed in 1600. One of this book probably was the Quran. We have references in the second trial about Menocchio saying that the Quran is a beautiful book. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. So um, Menocchio, of course, is famous and in its great book, uh, Ginsburg talk about both uh, his uh, cosmological idea, but also about his religious idea. For example, he thought that the salvation extra ecclesiam outside of the Catholic Church was possible. But at the same time, Ginsburg didn't stop too much on the Quran itself. Also because there is a mention only in the second trial. And so when he talk about Menocchio, a reader of the Quran, and also Scoglio, another popular reader from Lucca, it seems that he didn't arrive to an answer. Also because uh, in the 70s, he was interested in the conflict between high culture and popular culture. But nowadays that we are interested and we have a, perhaps also a different focus on what European could call other culture. And so a more global approach, this led me to try to understand if Menocchio read this book or not. And so what I did was to return with different questions to the sources. And in the first trial, actually not in the second trial, we have a line in which, or an answer to the inquisitor, in which Menocchio says to the inquisitors, I will not worship saints and neither the images because Abraham destroyed the idols when he was a teenager, leaving only the biggest God. So Menocchio said to the inquisitor that he wouldn't have worship the saints, neither the images. So Neither Ginsburg nor Andrea del Col, who published the trials of Menocchio, stopped on this sentence. But I was looking for different things, so I stopped on this episode, and then I compare Menocchio's utterances and his answer to Scolio's poem, because in Ginsburg in his book compares Scolio, this poet and popular peasant poet from Lucca to Menocchio. And also, returning to the manuscript in Lucca, we have a stanza in which Scolio quotes the same episode. So this episode was not taken from the Bible because Abraham in the Bible doesn't destroy idols. But actually, on commentary, in commentary, like Midrashic Rabbah of the Bible, we have this episode. 
From there, this episode traveled, of course, in Apocrypha, but also in, in, into the Quran. So in this translation of the Quran, we have this episode, and we know that Scolio for sure read this book because he, he quote also the title in, in his long poem. So we can compare this with Menocchio and with, with the information we have about him, reader of the Quran. So probably, based on this, we know that he opened the book. And now, research on the archive, we can see that the texts actually travel in the Venetian interland. Also, we know that this episode was told also, for example, in texts like the Gospel of Barnaba, so like in the Muslim gospel produced by Morisco and diffused in, uh, at the end of 16th century Venice. So why this is important? Well, this is important to understand what I called, and also uh, it's a very important topic for, in general, for Italian microhistory, is the distance. So this is just the distance between our generation and the microhistorian's generation. So we are focusing on different problems. Or this episode talks also about the distance between us and the reader of the 16th century. So probably a peasant reader of the 16th century was much more familiar with Abraham than an Italian secularized reader of the 20th century. And in that case, the book of the Quran was not a strange object or a strange text for Menocchio because he knew the character and he could compre comprehend and understand and memorize different stories about the character that was very familiar with. So in that sense, we understand Menocchio in front of Abraham thinking about Nostoi. Perhaps Menocchio was using a different Nostos, a different story of the same character, that is Abraham, and using for his religious and political purposes. So this question of the distance, I think, is very important because sometimes we are obsessed about learning from the past and how problems of the past are so close to us. But perhaps also we learn from the past looking at how distant was the past and is the past from us, but also how closer was a peasant reader to a Quranic story. You mentioned that Ginsburg thought this episode with Minocchio reading the Quran was almost incomprehensible and, and couldn't be explained. How does our understanding today illustrate the changes in, in history of reading and the history of the book? So this is a, a very important question and I thought a lot about this because in, in Ginsburg's books, of course, he was discussing this clash between popular culture and higher culture, elite culture. And also in the introduction, he's saying that a sharp classes is more interesting than a very vague interclasses. So we are in the middle of the 70s. And so he's analyzing Menocchio's readership 
and his skills as a reader, always from the point of view of his uh, popular peasant culture, cultura contadina. So for him, a book like the Quran would have been a foreign thing, would be something that was not possible to understand and also something that a page where he could project only uh, his own ideas. Ginsburg, that is. Ginsburg. Of course, Ginsburg's book was so important in the history of reading because it opened to the popular readership. But my approach was to see not just about comprehension, so not reflect only on comprehension, but also on memory. No? Because the Abraham episode, I mean, this is, a, of course, a microhistorical approach to discuss microhistory, is not about comprehend a story, but is about consciously or unconsciously remember an episode. And, of course, an episode about a character that was very fam familiar to him, not just from books, but probably also from frescoes and other sources. If I think about myself, raised in a public school in Italy, not having ha I didn't have a religious education, I had to read the Bible in order to understand the frescoes in the churches of my city. I'm from Rome. So probably for Menocchio, these characters were much more familiar than to us, or at least to me. This is really fascinating material. I think for me, the most surprising thing is that frequently within the, the study of the Islamic world, we discuss the influence of biblical traditions on study of the Quran, Apocrypha, as you said, Israeliyat. But rarely do we talk about knowledge of stories from, from that tradition, from the Quran or the Quranic commentaries in European realms. That was surprising in part because of this kind of narrative of chronological precedence that first came the Torah, you know, then New Testament, and then the Quran. And so we don't have as much openness to the thought that it goes the other way. But also this idea of diffusion of knowledge across the Mediterranean, as you just said, you know, people who weren't Italian knew Italian. People who weren't Arab knew Arabic for the purpose of trading. So it shouldn't be that's surprising that stories about the same prophets and the same sort of characters, as you say, within the Abrahamic tradition, if we want to call it that, could be shared. I think that we should not look at the Mediterranean as a dualistic space. So there is not just one way and the other way, but there are many ways. There is not just the northern shore and the southern shores, but there are many shores. And the space is not a space of mobility, but is a space in movement. Basing on this, I think that the, this episode tell us about the diffusion of the Quran and episodes of the Quran in the formation of Menachius' religious ideas. And also, this story was not just in the Quran, was also in Jewish commentaries on the Bible. So, of course, this my, in, mine is an hypothesis, and an hypothesis based on comparatism here. 
but tells us how stories that are not biblical or not strictly linked with the official tradition were used, discussed, and, and memorized, and, and digest. And I would say not stories from the Quran, but also, and, and more, much more importantly, the life of Muhammad itself. The life of Muhammad and Muhammad and the image and the portrait of the Prophet is crucial in the understanding of the role of a ruler and the role of a political guide. No? So if we turn from religious text to historiography, for example, we have an image of Muhammad that is completely different and uh, in the humanistic period, it starts to be seen as a political ruler. And especially in comparison also with the Ottoman rulers. So I think the re reflection of Europeans on the life and the achievement of the prophet are also very crucial in the development of the, uh, European political thought. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Listeners who are interested in finding out more about this topic can see the bibliography provided by Pierre Mattia on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thanks again. Thank you very much and for the interview, but also I would like to thank you as a listener because uh, I learn a lot from this podcast. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.